Welcome to Built for Life, the podcast dedicated to socially conscious property professionals who believe the future can be better than the present and your property decisions make it so. So to all of the innovators, this podcast will give you behind the scenes access to industry leading experts and researchers on how they think, create, analyze and deliver the best buildings in the world extracting their key advice, information, and considerations that you can apply to your personal and professional life. This is Adam Hines with my co-host, Jordan Ralph. Welcome to the Built for Life podcast. Hi, this is B Patel, the co-founder of BTR News, the industry's leading digital publication for Build Trend news, insights, research, and information. And you're listening to the Built for Life podcast. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Built for Life podcast, a kick-ass topic. Community is the cure, how co-living accommodation improves lives through social connections. As the uh, co-living market is still in its very infancy in the UK and internationally, we're still, we as a business, we're still sort of playing catch up in this space, but it is an area of huge interest to us uh, purely because of the quality of life benefits it delivers. So we're extremely excited to dive into this topic. And fortunately, we have an incredible guest with us who's got unrivaled and very, very unique experience in the co-living space to hold our hand, uh, which is great. We got down from Reshape and Reshape delivers affordable, well-designed shared homes for middle earners in London's London's most unaffordable areas. And what makes Jermaine's advice key and really, really unique is that he has been on all three sides of the coin in terms of uh, working from the local authority side, then also providing professional consultancy advice for co-living providers, And now he's actually client side, actually delivering co-living accommodation himself with uh, Reshape. So strap yourselves in for the deep dive. This will be awesome. So Jermaine, a huge, huge welcome to the show, mate. Thank you, Adam. Pleasure to be here. Welcome, Jermaine. Um, Yeah, no, likewise, we're we're really excited to to hear about about you and and, and your business. So I think starting off, um, as Adam mentioned about the the unique experience that you've had and, and and um how that sort of led to to where you are now and and reshape um it'd be great certainly from my perspective because obviously you and i hadn't hadn't had the um the pre-call that you had with adam um to talk through what what you've done it'd be great to hear about your personal background from consultancy local authority to now to now being the client in the co-living world yeah um well i'll dive right in i suppose it's probably worth taking it even further back to to my university days, to be honest. Um, I was someone who studied sociology and social policy, um, driven by a, a real purpose to to want to make a difference in people's lives, in, um, in particular people who are more marginalised in society. Um, and through studying social policy and sociology, I come across uh, Le Cabousier and Garden Cities and the notion that good design and, and well thought our architecture and placemaking can make a difference to people's quality of life. And really excited by the whole notion in that field, I then decided to become a, a town planner. Um, graduating in a 2008 recession, um, opportunities were very thin on the ground and I was 
I was very fortunate to secure myself a job at Kingston Council, um, the Royal Borough of Kingston. And and there I worked firsthand in development management. And it's very much of a, a process-driven experience where you get applications, you consider them against local planning policies. There's somewhat of a political interference occasionally for good and bad reasons. And you basically then make a recommendation on approving or refusing. And I ended up working in local government for for eight years um, across a number of um, councils, uh, which included Tower Hamlets, where I I finished my local government tenure. And I was somewhat happy with the experience I gained, but also frustrated um, because obviously working in in the UK in the planning system is very much a commercial driven sector and local government's hands are are somewhat tied in in how they can how they can place make how they can secure inward investment and how they can really make a difference Um, so I decided to go client side well consultancy side first um, and then moved on to client side and and working at client side, I was in a position where I had a lot more autonomy. I was able to direct not only the developments, but how we engage with local communities, how we empower local communities, how we make our buildings leave the legacy that I've always desired the developments for me to be involved in have. And I'm working directly for a co-living company I then got exposed to not only the planning process and the community process, but just how great co-living can be. Like it's it's a, it's a very unique way of living, but not something that's new. And, and we'll go on to talk about that in relation to communal and community living, but it, it, it's existed for hundreds and hundreds of years in many different ways. And working in, in co-living in the sector I was very successful uh, fortunately to secure seven co-living consents for over 2,000 beds across London and Ireland wow employer and um, to my mind there's not that many consents across the industry across the UK so I find myself in a position where I had a, a very unique skill set in an ability to unlock um, the, unlock development sites for co-living and I wanted to kind of get to the point where I was rowing my own boat so to speak like really enjoyed working for all my employees of the past but I got to the point where I realized that if I really want to make the difference I want to make if I really want to be in charge of my own destiny I have to create my own company I have to champion my own vision and it was just very fortuitous that at the time I was having these thoughts, there was two other gentlemen um, at previous employees as well, um, one called Charlie Gaynor, who's who's great at understanding the customer experience and, and the, the co-living product, and another gentleman called Alex Archer, who's uh, a land buyer. And, and between the three of us, we realised that we can source land, we can source investment, and we can unlock planning. And albeit there are skill sets that we don't have between the three of us we felt we had enough to start and and that's basically where where reshape reshape was born and and my journey to that and we've just had success upon success over the last 
six months, which has now resulted in us acquiring our first major scale development in the London Borough of Greenwich. Congratulations. That's a pretty epic, um, pretty epic achievement, um, Jermaine, just in terms of like the, t- the timescales that you guys have been going. It's a testament to, I guess, your the three of you, your background and, and your approach as well. So, no, it's, that's, that sounds amazing. In terms of um, what interesting is just like, I suppose, each each step of your career and experience has sort of just led to the next one, isn't it, in terms of evolution to get to this point? I mean, is it, I suppose, your university degree was kind of, as you say, is like the, the founding piece around in understanding what drives spaces and what drives people and, and how that sort of all, all patches in. Is, is that really the, what sits through the DNA of, of the business in people and place and, and design? Is that kind of the... Mm-hmm. One, one hundred percent. I think the only thing I would add to that is affordability. But for us, especially in an era of gentrification and the displacement of communities and free market economics, where the responsibility to to deliver social value and social impact really does fall on the shoulders of developers, it's about it's about delivering what we should be doing for local communities. Uh, and for our residents and and that runs through every single decision that we make as we shape and Jermaine I'd I'd like to sort of unpick a little bit more around the the co-living concept because you mentioned um that it's not a new concept but I I suppose in terms of it being a professional service delivered to the UK it's it's sort of in its infancy um but obviously this goes back generations and generations for how people live so it's all right to give um, a bit of an overview as to what the actual concept is and what you guys are sort of rolling out at a, at a macro level. Yeah, so so in it, in its simplest sense, co-living or also known as shared living is basically the notion that you live and are part of a shared economy in relation to the way you live in your building and the, and the way you connect with people in the building. So, for example. In a co-living building, you will have circa, a, a genuine co-living building, you'll have circa 200 to 300 residents. And with those residents, what you do is you have sharing facilities. So you'll have like a master chef style kitchen, a lounge, a gymnasium, a spa room, a library, co-working space. And all these spaces are basically designed to maximise the opportunity for social interaction between people and human connection, which then addresses things like loneliness and mental health issues and beyond that as well you also have a private space so similar to if you were sharing a a four or five bedroom victorian house you have your living room and your kitchen you also then have your bedroom and in a co-living scheme your bedroom is expanded upon that so you also have a small kitchenette and an ensuite bathroom and the reason for that is because albeit we want to maximize the opportunity for people to come together We've all got home from work that one day where you just don't want to speak to somebody and you just want to flick your shoes off while your trainers, stick the kettle on, maybe make some as quick as beans and toast and just sit there in your own space. And the way co-living's design is, is it's there for both purposes, for when you want to be interacting with people and when you want your quiet downtime. 
So something you said there really just pricked my ears. So I think when, I'm not sure if we spoke about this when we, we caught up before the podcast, but we um, before we actually launched our business, we did a, a two year research study with King's College London. And what we were trying to look at is we analysed buildings all over the UK and we were trying to identify what specific aspects of a building is most important for the the end user's quality of life. So is it the size of someone's home? Is it, I don't know, how much natural daylight they get? Is it the, the where it is? Is it how many stories it is? How much storage? All those sorts of things. And we're trying to almost make a hierarchy so we know what things are more important than others. And the most important element identified from that research was someone's how connected they are with their neighbors and their local community. And that was the strongest design aspect associated with having better quality of life is having a good connection to your neighbors and community. And there was something that you said there was that co-living is designed to maximize positive social interactions with people. And that's something that we always advocate is okay, how how in this master plan design can we create pockets or almost clusters of amenities so people all come together and interact and they can have a positive social connection experience and then build that relationship, which then turns to trust and community over time. So I love that that's sort of your core theme as to how you're bringing people together. And I'd be really, really interested. We've never actually analysed the co-living building, but I'd be really interested to see the quality of life of, of an average of your co-living residents versus people in maybe just like a traditional build-to-rent building. It'd be a, quite a fascinating study to um, look at. Not that I'm trying to uh, pin, pin yeah, any no, research no, we, on you, but it would no, be really interesting no. to see. Yeah, I think it's, it's something to ex- explore. But I think even before you look into the research, like there's a, there's an analogy I like to use, and and someone that's obviously clearly a northerner with my accent who lived in London for 12 years. I don't mind saying that, and I'm sure most of us can relate to it, but when you put your keys in the front door of your flat or your house and there's nobody on the other side of that front door, it can get very lonely very quickly. And I think in particular with with COVID and the requirement for self-isolation and somewhat disconnecting from our normal way of life, that's only been heightened. And what what co-living is, is your front door isn't your front door to your room. Your front door is the door you walk in from the high street. And everything beyond that is your home. And then that's the difference. Because if you look at your days at university, for example, most people's friendships from university are some of their strongest friendships now. And it's because they was living as part of a shared economy, whether it was in student halls or in a cluster flat of of six to ten residents. And you create deeper, meaningful connections. And that's what co-living does, where if you was in a a build to rent product, you just often feel like another flat in another building and not maybe know anyone beyond your next door neighbour who you just say hello to politely as and when you leave your flat. You've kind of you've just you've just answered a question that I had, which was was obviously about the the, the the benefits to end users living in such a such accommodation. And actually, what what I've loved is you've you've mentioned a HMO and you've mentioned obviously student accommodation or student um, connection, and and it was really resonating with me at that that moment just about how powerful that was living with people. Um, 
and I've never I've never thought of it in in that way in in co-living and I think there's from my perspective don't mind me saying Jermaine a, a, a misunderstanding of, of what it is as well I think that's a, a big a big part and I guess that's why you've, you've had massive success in in planning in the past but I guess from, from our perspective and what we've read and, and what we talk about and here is is how challenging it can be to get get planning on on co-living um because it, it isn't isn't understood but no I think what you've what you said is is pretty epic there I think going back to to what Adam said about understanding and from from our research um obviously some something like that would be would, would be really interesting to see just how powerful that is and it that you, you could almost forecast that would be the most powerful element of co-living is is the social and, and the research would 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 back that up com- completely well, well exactly and you you could have for example with every building you operate you could have a, a social value index which basically our social prosperity index where you're looking at the quality of life that people are experiencing with living in the building and then it also can ex- extend beyond to the local communities so for again at reshape we firmly believe that it is not our only our role to create communities within our buildings but to make sure that the existing communities around our buildings are also part of that process and feel welcomed within our buildings. Because when you get greater diversity, you enrich everybody's lives. And that, that's something that's a real big driver for us as, we, as we're progressing with our new business. Something that, that you mentioned earlier about a big um, sort of theme of your business and, and a massive cornerstone in its founding was the affordability. And I think something that, that is is often overlooked in terms of actually just how much that impacts people's lives around financial well-being and understanding how, how do you guys how are you guys approaching the, the affordability element to it i mean it can't i can't imagine it can't all be financial but is that what's the what's the sort of setup for that well i think b- before i answer that let me um let me just talk about the misunderstandings of co-living because i think they're interlinked okay i think one of the misunderstandings around co-living is is what co-living is and i think that them misconceptions exist because there's so many different people who badge themselves as co-living providers with differing products and differing visions so for example you've got co-living developers or operators who have five or six rooms in a single house then you've got co-living developers that aspire to have ultra cool highly exclusive private member club s type living accommodation and then you've got someone like reshape where we basically see ourselves as an intermediate rental product for middle learners who often can't afford to live in your coolest locations like peckham and shoreditch and clapham and for us co-living is it needs to be well designed it needs to be well built it needs to bring communities together but if it's not affordable for us it's not co-living it's it has to be seen as an intermediate rental product which is suitable and caters for local people key workers and people at the early stages of the career or people that are divorcees because Depending on your age isn't always a direct correlation to how much you earn. And co-living buildings, if they're designed right and they're inclusive enough, will attract people from 40, 50 and 60 years as well. Jermaine, it's probably a good time to jump into 
reshape and sort of ha- how your experiences previously and also sort of the the misconceptions and misunderstandings of industry have have shaped your business and what your sort of mission and what you guys are, are pushing is so it's all right to give us an overview of um reshape yeah so so reshape uh a new co-living uh, company or shared living company um we've been in existence for six to eight months and we have a number of functions as a business so first and foremost we find um, opportunities for land development so we we pride ourselves on being a ground-up developer so with my business partner Alex we will source development opportunities whether they're um, undeveloped land or underutilized land Um, we then scope whether or not it's the right location so for example we believe that co-living should be in your metropolitan locations with great transport links as opposed to edge of town or near industrial parts for example so we will we'll find sites we will go through the planning process and all with a view to build out and operate our buildings um, as a business we believe in be- being very streamlined um, so focus on not only the planning but also the customer experience and at reshape we believe that the quickest way to grow organically and good growth is through good collaboration so we will partner with white label operators to operate our buildings we will work with highly respected contractors with covenants to to cover the uh, the development risk and that that's for us how we how we see co-living evolving as as a developer operator stance through partnering the best we we don't want to operate food and beverage on our sites we want to find the emerging local SME or startup who's got local roots and we want we want them to be on our sites. So you see, that's very much the way Reshape is. I think it's just a, a collaborative business, which is very lean and is, is very investable now um, because we seem to get a lot of tra- traction from investors because it's very clear on what we want to do and how we want to do it. And I think a lot of people agree that the way we seek to deliver co-living is is the way forward. And Jermaine, you've you've said a couple of times shared living instead of co-living. Are they are they the same thing, or is it, is there a, I suppose a why why shared living? So the history behind it is that co-living is how it first started, and that was the term that was branded around the most. The Mayor of London and the London plan define it as shared living. Um, and at Reshape, we're probably leaning more towards the notion of shared living as well because of the negative connotations of co-living. Um, but in reality, they are interchangeable words. It's just I feel that everyone and anyone is badging themselves as co-living, um, which, which, which is quite problematic for the sector. I quite like the word shared living. It just sounds better and more community focused. Just when you when you've said that a couple of times, I thought, oh, shared living, that sounds quite nice. I, I really like that. So it's just interesting. I wanted to ask how that works. So one one thing you mentioned um, about, let's say you weren't looking to operate food and beverage on site and you would bring someone else in. So 
obviously your social impact is going beyond just your residence. You're looking to bring external local businesses in. So I think that's a really important distinction to make. Is is there any sort of other examples of how you're trying to bring, um, think outside the box so your impact goes beyond your residence? Yeah, 100%. So um, working for a previous employer, I, I created something called the Community Investment Programme. The Community Investment Programme effectively is working how a building can maximise the impact it has on the local area. In reality, what this means is for every development we bring forward, we will identify 12 to 20 social enterprises, community groups, charities, resident groups, and we will basically sit there and we will discuss what do they need and what do they want through our building. The reason why I take this approach is because I feel a lot of developers with good intentions, they'll go to a local community group and they'll go, we can do X for you. But for me, when you're telling someone what you're going to do for them, you are already limiting the impact you can have. And I think the most real example of this is, is that I went to meet a Moroccan woman's charity based in Westbourne Park about a year and a half ago. And I knew from their website that they did sewing clubs and cooking classes. And in that meeting, I just said to them, beyond what we've talked about, what is your greatest need? What issue are you dealing with on a daily basis, which is impacting everything you did? And to my surprise, the response was, well, the main issue we have is we have Moroccan women Um, because it's a Moroccan-based charity, turn up on their doorsteps, suffering from domestic violence. They've got no passport. They've got no money in their pocket. And then all the staff on that centre have literally hours to try and find this individual a bed for the night. And without asking the question, what is your greatest need? I would have never known that. But because she answered that question, I was able to say, well, my current employer has empty beds. We have churn. We have vacancy rates. Why have we got an empty bed when you've got a need like this? And what we did from that then is we launched a pilot scheme where basically for six months, every time they picked up a phone, we would find an empty bed and we would put that person in it. And what we did is by doing that, you don't only help the individual that suffers from domestic violence, but we've actually freed up six hours of the day of that volunteer who no longer has to phone through effectively like a yellow pages book of hotels trying to find someone in a bed. And for me, that's what development and co-living is about. It is about using every single asset and every single space in the building as best as possible from whether it being providing free coffee mornings for a local youth club or providing teenagers that are using martial arts to get out of crime free access to the gym that is what you need to be doing as developers. And, and that is something that we, should, we, we pride ourselves on, on making sure happens. Jermaine, that's um, pretty speechless with, with, all, with all of that. I mean, there's some pretty hard hitting topics that, that come out of that, that, that you guys have, have managed to, you know, in, in the past, um, sort of respond to and, and respond to in such an amazing, amazing way. I mean, it's it's something that, Adam and I have have seen part of in, in our work and our research, and it, it's always quite sobering to see 
you know, we're not just dealing with with quite ordinary challenges. These are and, and these are the challenges that people have to deal with, and um, and and that is is fundamental in in property. And it's amazing to see just the role that that, that shared living can play in in addressing those and about understanding the very people that are going to be be living in it. So it's 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 really commendable and 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 and, and amazing as well in in how that how how that responds. Um, something that I think is is probably filtering out less and less as part of our podcast is asking uh, the question of of COVID and and pandemics as as we start to exit lockdown and obviously it's it's not such a new topic anymore but it will be with us in property you know in, in the next six months twelve months and and a couple of years I think there'll be a, a long term effect what what's your thoughts on how how the pandemic has changed the landscape and and how it's and how shared living will sort of respond to that. Yeah, I think I think it's only increasing the need for shared living. To be honest, I think when you when you consider what shared living is and what it's an alternative is, it's not necessarily an alternative way of living in relation to your own house or your own flat. It's an alternative way of living as opposed to being in shared accommodation. So if you if you cash yourself back to when you may have lived in shared accommodation and there's three or four of you in your in your house or your flat and you're all in eight to 15 square meter rooms and then there's that one living room if you was looking that living room's not been not been converted to another bedroom you are literally confined to your bed space so you are working from home from bed space and i imagine over the last year it's been first one up gets the living room and sure is accommodation in its traditional form through hmos isn't equipped for covid it it just it just isn't and what shared living does is it provides those spaces to be able to work from home to still have access to facilities to still have access to gymnasiums or spas while the whole world is in lockdown and i only think that when um, the pandemic passes and hopefully it will be soon the desire to be part of something is only going to grow. Like we are, we are creatures of habit. And although we've we've somewhat been cocooned, I am sure that as soon as the gates open, we're gonna we're gonna want to get back out there, connect with people, and we're gonna be want to be part of more communities. So I think co-living's proved to be very resilient, and it will continue to be. Um, and I think the the pandemic has only just heightened the importance of what the nation should be considering in relation to mental health and loneliness and isolation and domestic violence and deprivation these are all things that have come to the fore and hopefully as a nation people will will come together more and and do better for the neighbor i completely agree with everything you've said that was um that was spot on and what I suppose while we're on this topic of of sort of macro trends for the market, what do you sort of see beyond COVID once that's all gone? What do you sort of see the future trends of shared living in the UK and internationally to be? Just growth, to be honest. I think I think we're going to see exponential growth. I think I think at the moment it's not an institutional investable asset for most but i think over the next few years we're going to see 
a lot more institutional investment opportunities into the space. And I think at that point as well, there's going to be a separation of types of whole living providers or shared living providers. And I think those who see shared living for what it is as an intermediate affordable housing product, which generates a strong financial yield and is more investable and more sustainable, that proportion of the shared living market is is really going to take off. I think the more compromised co-living schemes or schemes which are focusing on this ultra cool, highly exclusive, I think that may only be a fad and I think that they will fall away because human connection is, is one thing, but space is another. And you need space to function. You need a space where you can entertain a friend or a loved one. So I think although shared living is confused at the moment, I think it it will become more defined. And and I think you'll see investment falling behind one part of it, which is definitely those that see shared living as an intermediate rental product for everybody and not just a few. Love it. Absolutely love it. Jermaine, where can uh, people find, follow, get in contact with you? Yeah, um, so I'm on LinkedIn, um, Jermaine Brown. Um, that's, I'm sure the spelling will be up, uh, E on the end of both. And um, reshapeland.com is our website. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm quite responsive if anyone wants to ask any questions and always happy to engage with people. Excellent. Love that. Thank you, Thank Jermaine. Thank you so much for your time. That was, uh, and the education, co-living is something that, um, well, I like to say, I'm going to start using shared living. I prefer that much more. But that, <laughs> this is something yeah. that, that Jordan and I haven't had a huge background in. So it's been really insightful to, to sort of peel back the layers and get a better understanding of the ins and outs of it. Not, yeah, what you guys are doing is amazing. And um, so please keep up your amazing work. And thanks for your, your time and your thoughts today. Thank no, you. thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Built for Life podcast. If you learned something new today or found value from hearing from a different property perspective, please comment on what you found useful as it helps us understand what you like and what you want to hear more of. And also please subscribe if you want more and most importantly, please share this video to the people in your network you believe will get the most value from the information as you are personally helping spread information and education across the industry. As they say, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change your world. And by you watching and sharing this, you are now part of that group. And just to finish, if you would like unlimited free access to the world's best research and resources related to health, well-being and the built environment, you can subscribe to the Life Proven Library where academic research, reports and case studies are regularly added. They're then reviewed in detail and the key findings are extracted into easy to use dot points and also a brief summary video. So you don't even need to read the reports. All the heavy lifting has been done for you as you can just watch the summary. So just head to www.lifeproven.co.uk and click on the button library at the top of the page. And as always, If you have a project, an investment opportunity, or you are interested in a collaboration and would like to discuss directly, you can contact us at adam at lifeproven.co.uk.